Today's scripture comes from the book of Mark, chapter 14, verses 32 to 42. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Hey everyone, thank you for joining us today. Uh, Whether you're coming from the West Coast or the Midwest, the South, the East Coast, somewhere around the world because exilic people are all over the place, we're so grateful that you can join us today for Sunday worship. Uh, Last week, we embarked on a new Sunday sermon series called The Great Questioner, When Jesus Questions Us. And the reason why we're doing this Sunday sermon series is because whether you identify as religious or not, Oftentimes, the way that we build our lives is based upon these existential questions that we have, like questions like, is there a God or is there no God? If there is a God, is he good? Because if he's good, then why is this happening in my life right now? And why is that happening in my life right now? And why is 2020 happening? What is the purpose of life? Identity questions like, who am I? So these are the types of questions that we have, whether we know it or not. And based upon these answers that we think we have, we live our lives. But I think an equally helpful way of building our lives is not only based upon the questions that we might have, but particularly if you are on some kind of spiritual journey, I think an equally helpful way of understanding life and the meaning of life is based upon the questions that God might have for us. And when you take a look at the Bible, it turns out that there are a whole host of questions that God has for us. For example, um, who do you say that I am? Why are you so afraid right now? Why do you worry so much? And so every week we're gonna be taking a look at some of these different questions because when you take a look at the gospel accounts, Jesus is asked 183 questions, yet he answers only eight of them. And while he answers only eight of these questions, he himself asked 307 questions to other people. And so while Jesus might be the answer to life's ultimate questions, It turns out that he's also the ultimate questioner as well. And so today we're going to be taking a look at the question, couldn't you stay awake for one hour? And it dawned on me as I was thinking about this question that our virtual Sunday services are actually less than one hour. And I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to engage in this format. And I'm one of the pastors. And I think a part of the reason for that is because these virtual Sunday services were never meant to be a replacement for the real thing. You know, getting an emoji is not the same thing as getting a real hug and embrace. It's just not the same. And yet at the same time, as a family, 
these Sunday services are the primary way we are called to engage with God. And so it's really important. And so I do wonder if the question that Jesus asked his, uh, his disciples, can you stay awake for one hour? I do wonder if this might be the same question that he asked for us today. And I say that because based upon a recent Barna survey, one out of three practicing Christians are no longer participating in these services. And if you're between the ages of 26 to 40, which is the bulk of our church, one out of two practicing Christians are no longer participating in these services. And so I do wonder if what's happening right now is a question that Jesus might have for us as well. But here's what I wanna do. Rather than condemning you, because condemning people rarely ever leads to change, and rather than trying to motivate you like a football coach and you know trying to push you to these uh, services, what I want to do instead is try and inspire you. The word inspire uh, is formed by two words, in spirit. This is one of the reasons why the word inspire is in our mission statement. And so what I want to do is that instead of condemning you or pushing you, what I want to try and do is pull something out of you. And what I want to pull out of you is your love for God that I know is inside of you. And the way that I want to draw that out of you is by reminding you of God's love for you. So the way that I want to do that in this sermon is by capturing your imaginations for a moment and taking you back to 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem on a brisk Thursday evening, probably close to midnight, in an upper room where Jesus is about to have the very last meal of his life prior to his death and the very last meal that he's about to have with his friends, the disciples. And because he's just hours away from his imminent death, I mean, what would you wanna do when, if you were about to die? For me, I'd probably wanna spend it with my closest friends and family, and that's what he's doing here. But unfortunately, this last meal that is called the Last Supper, it's also really, really awkward because it's during this meal that they find out that one of them is actually gonna betray Jesus and all of them, and that's Judas. And Judas Iscariot gets up from the table and storms out in shame and humiliation and probably anger. But even though this meal is crazy awkward, it's also very inspiring because it's during this meal that Jesus says, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood that is about to be spilled for all of you. And although they didn't quite understand these words at this, at this time, they did probably think that it did mean something pretty significant. And so after the meal that they have, they get up and they go for a walk outside and they leave Jerusalem because Jerusalem right now is basically like New York City on New Year's Eve. It is loud, it is crowded, and it's filled with pandemonium because it is um, Passover week. And this is when all the Jewish, the Jewish community from all over the world would take their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And so Jesus, he basically wants some alone time with his friends. So they leave the city and walk outside the city to a garden that they would frequently go to called Gethsemane. And this is where we pick up on the story. If you take a look with me at verses 32 to 34, it says, they went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. 
So Jesus is in some kind of emotional agony. He's deeply distressed. He's troubled. He's sorrowful. In fact, the Greek word for distress is the word perilupos. And the word peri is where we get the word perimeter. And so Jesus feels like right now he's surrounded by a perimeter of distress, uh, trouble, and sorrow. In fact, in Luke's account, it says that Jesus is so distressed that while he's praying, his sweat is like drops of blood falling to the ground. Uh, this is the clinical term for uh, hematidrosis, where you're in so much agony and distress that your capillaries actually inflate and explode, and your blood comes out of your sweat glands. And so Jesus is in emotional anguish right now. And chances are that over the past seven months, um, maybe not to this degree, but to a certain degree, you might have felt some kind of emotional distress, trouble, and sorrow because of all the things that are going on from the pandemic to people getting sick and maybe dying from COVID or other related causes, uh, family tensions because you're all cooped up in one space, relational tensions, and it has led to a lot of anxiety, loneliness, depression. Maybe you can't sleep. Maybe you're clenching your teeth. Maybe you're breaking out. I mean, it, the ripple effects of this are crazy. And you too might feel like your soul is overwhelmed right now. And the reason why I say that your soul might feel overwhelmed right now is because in the Bible, we are composed of both body and soul. Uh, secular materialism says that we're just physical bodies, but in the Bible, we are both body and soul. Now, we are pretty good about taking care of our bodies. I, I actually pulled my back twice within a span of one week, and so did my wife Hannah, actually. And so what we've been doing for you know to practice self-care for our bodies is that we do yoga about two or three times a week. So when it comes to self-caring for our bodies, we're pretty good at that. But when it comes to our souls, we don't really know what to do. And yet in this text, it says that Jesus' Jesus's soul is overwhelmed with agony. And so what does Jesus do? Well, if you take a look at the, uh, verse 35, it says, going a little farther, Jesus fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. So what does Jesus do? He prays. And before you go, oh gosh, this is going to be another sermon on prayer. I'm probably going to agree with what you're saying, but the truth of the matter is it's going to make very little difference in my life. Um, first of all, I understand prayer is very hard. It doesn't come naturally to me. It doesn't come naturally to anyone. It's an uphill battle for all of us. And personally for me, if I'm not very intentional about where I pray, when I pray, and what I pray for, if, I'm, if I don't have that kind of game plan, I don't do it. And so I totally understand. And yet at the same time, I do know this. I know that one day when we stand before the face of God and we get a glimpse of his beauty and his power and his glory and his splendor, the one feeling that every single one of us is going to have is, why did I not seek your face more? And that is a re regret that I don't want to have. And that is a regret that I don't want you to have. And so here's what I want to do to try and persuade you to pray, particularly when your soul feels overwhelmed. Let me first appeal to your rational side, and then let me appeal to your pragmatic side, okay? So chances are, if you live in New York, you pride yourself in being pretty smart, logical, and rational. So let me appeal to that side first, okay? If Jesus is the Son of God, 
and he felt like he needed to pray when he was overwhelmed. What makes you think that when you're overwhelmed, you don't have to pray? Let me say that one more time. If Jesus, being the Son of God, felt like he had to pray to take care of his emotional anguish, what makes you think that you don't have to pray when you feel, when your soul feels overwhelmed? We have to. If God himself felt like he needed to, we do too. But let me also appeal to your pragmatic side as well with a quote that I frequently say whenever we talk about prayer. And I don't know who said this, um, but this person once said, once a man was asked, what did you gain by regularly praying to God? The man replied, nothing. But let me tell you what I lost. Anger, ego, greed, depression, insecurity, and fear of death. You know, prayer, it might not change a thing outside of you, but prayer can change everything inside of you. It might not change your outward circumstances, but it can change the disposition of your heart. You know, when we pray, we might not gain a thing that we wanted, but it's very possible that we could lose everything that is not good for us which in many ways is a form of gain. And so if Jesus prioritizes prayer, it's important that we prioritize it too. Well, the story continues, and in verse 37 to 41, it says, Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, Are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is so weak. Once more he went and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? So Jesus prays to God the Father because he needs his Father's presence during this agonizing time. He brings his disciples with him because he needs the presence of his friends during this agonizing time. The only problem is that when he goes to pray and comes back, he finds that they're all sleeping on him. Not just once, but three times. What's interesting is that Peter, just prior to this, hours prior to this, he says to Jesus, wherever you go, I will follow you. I will go to prison for you. I will die for you if I have to. And yet what we see right now with Peter and all the other disciples for that matter is that they are sleeping on him when, when he needs them the most. Peter in particular would go and deny Jesus three more times after this. And what we see in the life of Peter and the rest of the disciples, to be honest with you, is a reflection of our own lives. Because to a certain degree, it is easier to die for someone than it is to live for someone, isn't it? Death, all it takes is one zealous act, just one act. But living for someone, it requires a sustained amount of faithfulness day in and day out. Talk to anyone that is married and they will tell you that dating filled with zealous moments. But what makes marriage so hard is because it's all about sustained faithfulness day in and day out, which is why it's so hard. But even in the midst of his friend's own unfaithfulness, Jesus is still faithful. He doesn't say with friends like these who needs enemies, but he says that even with these kinds of friends who are like enemies sometimes, I will die for them. Even though they are not faithful to me, I will be faithful to them. And the reason why Jesus has this kind of posture is because at the end of the day, Christianity, it's all about a relationship. Religion, it's all about our performance. 
doing all these good things, not bad things. But in Christianity, the heart of it is about a relationship where God wants to be with us, even sometimes when we don't want to be with him. I don't know if you've ever had a crush on someone so bad uh, that your heart almost hurt. But the only problem was that person didn't really have a crush on you. I don't know if that's ever happened. I'm sure it's never happened to anyone in our church, but let's just say you have a friend that's experienced that before. Ask them what it felt like when you really, really like someone and want to be with someone, but they don't really want to be with you. Kind of hurts. In the story of Christianity, though, the tables are reversed, where God wants to be with us, obviously not romantically, but he's our father, and we're his children, we're his sons and daughters, and he wants to have a meaningful relationship with us. The problem is, we don't really want to have a relationship with him. And we have no idea the power that we have to shatter and break his heart. And yet, even in the midst of that power and that, that, that brokenness that, that we've given to God, even in the midst of that, he still wants to be with us. So let me try and woo your hearts for a moment with one story and then the story of the gospel. I want you to imagine for a moment that you're sitting in a diner um, having dinner. And in the booth adjacent to you is an elderly couple that has just finished eating their meal. And so the waitress swings by and gives uh, them the tab and they pay for it. And the elderly husband gets up from the table and proceeds to leave the restaurant, leaving his wife just sitting at the table. And so you think, oh, that's kind of weird. But you see the husband get into the car and drive up the car to the front of the entrance to the diner puts on his hazard lights, get out, gets out of the car, and walks back into the restaurant uh, towards his wife. And the elderly husband stands right in front of his wife and stoops low. She scoots towards the edge of her seat, and she puts her arms around his neck. And as she puts her arms around his neck, he puts one hand around her back and one hand underneath her legs, and he picks her up. And all of a sudden, you understand why. And it's because she is in a full body brace and she can't walk. And so he picks her up, carries her outside the restaurant, opens the door of the car, and gently places her in. The waitress that was serving then comes to your table and she says, looks like he took his vows pretty seriously. And I love that story because it's a picture of the kind of love that God has for us. In the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of us being a burden sometimes, in the midst of all of that, He has a sustained amount of faithfulness to us even when we are not faithful to Him. And really the best picture of that, that faithfulness and love for us is the cross. If you take a look at um, verse 36, Jesus says, Abba, Father, Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. Why is Jesus so distressed in these verses? He's distressed because he's not only about to taste a physical death, but a spiritual death as well. While Jesus can relate to all the emotional troubles that we go through, the truth of the matter is we can't relate to Jesus with what he's about to go through because he was about to taste something that no one else in history was about to taste and it has everything to do with this cup. You see in the Bible, this cup represents the wrath of God. It represents hell. 
the curse and punishment of sin. How did Socrates die, for example? Socrates drank poison from a chalice. And similarly on the cross, Jesus was supposed to drink hell in our place, which is why he asked God the Father, is there any other way? You can do anything. Is there any other way? And the way that God the Father responds to him in prayer is, there is no other way. Either they perish or you perish. And much like Esther, Jesus says, that if I perish, I perish. And it's on the cross that Jesus drinks the wrath of God in our place down to the last drop as the Father tilts the cup all the way up so that not one drop was remaining for us to taste. It was on the cross that Jesus experiences an eternity of hell in a matter of six hours. It's on the cross where Jesus not only dies a death for thousands of people, but billions upon billions upon billions of people. And the reason why he does it is because he's he's crazy in love with us. Now, if God is that fiery hot, if God's love is that fiery hot for us, what is the temperature of our love for God? What is the temperature of your love for God right now? In Matthew 24, it says later on, the love of, men, uh, the love of many will grow cold. What is the temperature of your love for God right now? One of the ways of warming up our hearts is by warming up our hearts to the gospel and what Jesus has done for us uh, in our place. So I want us to take this opportunity to reflect on that and close with um, one final verse in John 12, 27, where Jesus says, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very hour, uh, very reason I came to this hour. The reason why Jesus came because of his love for you. Let's remember that as we think about these services going forward. His love for you. Let's pray.